This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast with Remembrance Day, historian Andrew Birch at the Canadian War Museum joins the Shift with a look back at Canada's part in key historical events, war and supporting other countries. Steve Stebbing has the lowdown on what the hell we should watch this weekend. Some new releases such as Marvels, The Holdovers, classics like Scrooged in 4K. And are you okay with Taylor Swift, donuts, and a million dollar purse all on the Shift Daily Podcast? Remembrance Day is an incredibly important time. I got the uh, I got the wink from a volunteer walking out of Costco. I made the decision a few years ago to buy a poppy pin from the poppy store. And because I, you know, you go, you spend your couple of bucks, your five bucks, whatever you can on your poppy. And then it just kind of blows away and you lose it half a day later. Right. And so I was like, there's gotta be a better way. So what I did was, is I went to the Legion and because my grandfather was a veteran, I think they call it an associate membership. And so what I did was I bought a membership instead of donating money in the, in the little boxes, I, I bought a membership. And then that way I actually donated more and then I get the newsletters, which is kind of fun. And then I bought a poppy pin. Now that pin has lasted me three years and I like that idea. I suggest that for everybody. In fact, the poppy store, they are shameless at going out and making sure that they sell you poppy things. And I love it. And so go check that out as an idea. Now the wink came from the guy who was volunteering, selling poppies at Costco on the way out the door. He saw my pin, gave me the wink, gave him a smile, walked out the door. How we acknowledge Remembrance Day is different for all of us. It's important for all of us to realize that all the things that we get to celebrate and enjoy today are because of sacrifices that somebody made. And it's not just the people who went and died in battle either. It's the people that chose a life of service, a people that went and helped out during a forest fire or a flood right? They put their lives at risk and they dedicate their lives to nothing more than keeping our country and the notion of our country safe. So when we talk about Remembrance Day, there is so much more to be had than the world wars. And that doesn't mean that they're not important. And this is where we get started. Uh, Dr. Andrew Birch is here, a modern era historian with the Canadian War Museum. Post-1945, technically, Andrew, the distinction of Remembrance Day is incredibly important because that was a very important moment in time and what it's meant since then has changed a little bit yeah as as, uh, as we were uh, kind of getting started I, I observed you know every generation remakes remembrance day uh, based on its own needs to recognize the uh, the conflicts of their day of course it, it starts uh and is linked to very uh, inextricably linked to that first world war um a moment that uh, the 11th of November, when the uh, the armistice went into effect, when those uh, the the guns fell silent on the Western Front and the firing stopped, and so uh, the the world had a chance to catch its breath, and then the kind of idea about the moment of silence and the the reflection comes a year later. But how to mark this occasion through uh, throughout the Commonwealth with uh, Remembrance Day and the moment of silence, and in that interim you know, was very much for, by and for veterans of the First World War, that then as the Second World War unfolded, grew to include veterans uh, serving, wounded soldiers, and uh, then after 1945, recently demobilized soldiers, uh, who then welcomed into their ranks uh, sooner or later, uh, the veterans of the uh, of the wars that followed, the wars and peacekeeping missions and uh, contemporary operations. So every every generation has maintained, you know, the passing of the torch starts with that one event uh, linked to the armistice in the First World War, but it uh, th- it grows and changes depending on on uh, what's going on at the present day. So it, it's, it's a very uh, more than a century old now as a tradition uh, and still going strong. And I think we can be very grateful for that. History continues to unfold and we learn more about what our government got up to over the course of time too. We've seen that just with political things about money and politics and things that happen in the background. Um, with the military, Andrew, I'm assuming that over the course of time, things have happened that we find out about so much later as 
um, some of the um, confidence and confidentiality of certain um, top secret events, I think, unfold. So history does continue to unfold and change, I'm assuming, all the time. I mean, we did recently find out that Canadian military was being uh, in, deployed, special force style, in um, in Israel. Now, people didn't know that a few weeks ago, but I'm thinking there must be things that come to light through the course of history that you guys discover about wars of past where Canadian military, uh, we learn new things? Oh, all the time. Uh there's an enormous amount of activity that's going on in the armed forces uh, at any given time. They're all over the country. They're doing various different tasks. Some are well publicized. Others aren't aren't as much. And especially when it comes to things like the uh, the special forces, where uh, secrecy is um, you know uh, uh, is in itself part of what makes their job possible. Uh, they're not there for the limelight. They're there for uh, to undertake some tasks that uh, may be quite difficult and may be rendered impossible with publicity. So as time goes on, we learn more and more about those. Uh, there's always a challenge, of course, you know, getting access to the, you know, you can you can access very freely the war diaries of the uh, the First World War, Second World War in Korea. It's a lot harder to get those sorts of uh, documents and data uh, of contemporary observations of what was going on um, without uh, running into some classification either through the uh, the armed forces archival system or through the uh, the archival system in uh, uh, at the Library and Archives of Canada. Uh, we're, we're working on that with them, of course, uh, making requests, trying to find out stuff. But you're always finding out really interesting things because, uh, uh, and as you get, as you move through time, you're also, uh, especially where I work, I have the opportunity to speak with all sorts of people whose lives have been shaped by war and whose accounts may not be in the official record. Uh, you know, because some of that stuff doesn't get written up and put in the war diary, it, it's really held within a very small uh, group of of uh, soldiers serving together who have a shared experience, but it may not find its way into that uh, that broader conversation. So, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of things going on in the armed forces and even you know, history is a is a house that we continue to build as more and more information becomes available. Uh, that's one of the reasons there are still books being written about the First and Second World Wars, because there's still uh, stories that are coming forward, stories that perhaps aren't as well understood that could bear greater scrutiny. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's an ongoing process. It's interesting how you think that history is written so black and white, and then it does change with personal stories and diaries and you know, some veteran, you know, gets old and dies and then family finds some book or diary and sends it in and it it realizes it maybe colorizes or creates a more three-dimensional picture of one particular situation that might not have been documented very well. Quite remarkable. Um, Andrew Birch with the Canadian War Museum. So can we go backwards in time then? We normally, you know, on the Shift AV Club this week for movies, we wanted to pick uh, movies that wasn't just Saving Private Ryan, right? Every, for the last few years, it's been that movie. And I don't diminish that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. So we tried to pick um, a few other ones, uh, Dunkirk, Heine Road, um, other ones like that. And when we when we look at those things, can we go back to 1945 and sort of maybe hold our hand through the progression of time? I create a bit of a timeline for this because I think we have some mega gaps in time as Canadians because certain war efforts or contributions were a little less quiet than others. And there's some that we might have missed. Absolutely. I mean, when we go to back to 1945 at the end of the Second World War, uh, you know, looking at it from most people kind of think of that from May 1945 onwards. That's certainly where you get the uh, the big screaming front line, uh, front page headlines. War is over. Uh, of course, the war doesn't actually end until Japan surrenders in September of 45. But everyone's got their eye towards the future. What does that look like? And for a lot of people who who were in uniform, the future very much looked like a future out of uniform. They'd had six years in some cases where they had uh, been away from family. Uh, they'd been posted overseas for that time. They are eager to resume youth that's interrupted by war, uh, get back to education and so on. And so a lot of the work that's being done in 1945, it's very much with an eye to a more peaceful, uh, to enjoy the benefits of the peace that was won through uh, blood and sweat and loss over the course of, uh, of many years. Uh, destroying the uh, Axis war machine and, and bringing its uh, uh, organizers to heal. And that uh, is really where kind of the story picks up is is this idea of what should the peace look like? And part of that was about making sure that veterans were were taken care of. There's whole 
the whole process begun of moving from a country of, uh, of renters towards more homeowners, uh, increasing the rates of post-secondary education as uh, there was very favorable terms offered for um, uh, post-secondary education or vocational training uh, post-war as veterans returned home. But all that would all kind of start uh, as you figured out the shipping and actually got people home, because it took a long time. You couldn't just board aircraft and get home. You actually had to compete for uh, space aboard uh, aboard shipping to get people back home and then uh, to get them into their, their life. So people were, in 1945, their eye was on the future, but uh, it would often be almost a year before some of these people would actually manage to get home uh, and get out of uniform, uh, as the case may be. And that was the aim of the government, right? They didn't want to have... Uh, the army was very keen to have a very large army. They managed to build up their forces during the the uh, the war, owing to the exigency. They said, "Okay, we need a strong army in peacetime," and the government said, "Ah, no, no, thanks. We'd rather pay for a uh, uh, a smaller armed force." So we very rapidly demobilized and put a lot of those uh, efforts into that uh, kind of civilian reconstruction program, and that would be great uh, and a great, very defensible state of affairs. But the world situation changed very rapidly as the wartime alliance between Canada, the United States, and uh, in particular, the Soviet Union uh, starts to fragment. And that the signs were kind of on the wall during the war, uh, but really became very pronounced uh, in 1945. And especially as time moved forward to 1946 um, and 48 and the fall of Czechoslovakia, the rising of the Iron Curtain, of course, uh, 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 Winston Churchill warning about that the year after the the first uh, Second World War in uh, Fulton, Missouri, uh, in 1946, and uh, it wasn't taken super seriously by the uh, the Americans at the time. But anyone who's paying close attention to what was going on in Eastern Europe would very rapidly see that, you know, the Americans and the Brits and others were demobilizing, moving their troops back. The Russians were were consolidating power in that area and set up the stage for what we, of course, now know as the Cold War. Um, and that really did have uh, a bit of a chilling impact on the foreign policy field, but didn't really become real for Canada in a military sense uh, in a great way until 1950 when the uh, the war in Korea broke out. Uh, and that's when the Canadian government started to take uh, the Cold War perhaps a little more seriously, and in particular to um, uh, meet the demands of the United Nations in a very serious way uh, to reinforce the American and South Korean effort in uh, in South Korea to repel the North Korean invasion and took that as the signal that uh, the Cold War was here to stay. It was a very serious uh, challenge and led to a 40-year commitment of forces uh, on the ground in uh, in NATO um, in in uh, in in Germany and in France, an air division a brigade that was deployed over there as the Korean War was going forward. Uh, so, yeah, the the uh, the pattern for uh, for how the the rest of the Cold War would would be set kind of gets solidified and crystallized, but six years after the Second World War uh, starts, uh, it comes to an end. So you really do start to see that pattern, and then you know you have other things that take place, such as peacekeeping, which kind of gets off to a a very uh, shaky start in 1948, and uh, then becomes very famously uh, set up in a, uh, the, the peacekeeping that we kind of more recognize now uh, in 1956 with the Suez Canal crisis. So basically, as these crises pile up, if there are calls upon the Canadian government the uh, the arm, and through them, the armed forces, to respond to these events through the structures that were set up at the end of the Second World War uh, and after the Second World War, so the United Nations... NATO uh, to try to respond to these crises and to make sure they don't uh, spiral into a, a nuclear war, which is really what the the kind of the, the world we've been living with since then, to a greater or lesser extent. Mm -hmm. It's all been focused on basically that, right? Is let's not create catastrophe by doing that. Yeah. So this this gets us into the sort of the war that we know, and then we've had all of these other little ones that have happened here, there, and everywhere. Since it seems to have worked, though, Andrew, over the course of time, we we still have war. I, I often will say that we we're so lucky in our Western world to be protected by uh, this this non-war life that we worry about all kinds of things when real life in most of the world includes days like this and bombs falling and things blowing up and and all of that stuff. So we often, I think, have such a rosy view of humanity around the world because there's lots of places where these things do continue. I mean, and it's not just third world countries. I mean, 
Ireland took a really, really long time to sort their stuff out, right? We just as one example. And then of course, recent events. So the, these, the world we know today seems to have less war, but it, it can't be forgotten that it has very much continued and just inflamed in the last two years to a level that we haven't seen in a long time. Is that fair? I think it's, uh, it, it all depends on when you start to count things, right? So we often think about, say, the war in Ukraine is starting in 2022, but of course it right. starts back in 2014. 14. But yeah. with the, uh, and you, if you were um, enterprising about it, you could probably find the roots of it going back to the 1930s in some respects. So there's, there's uh, where you, where you, uh, where you kind of count it starting does have a great deal of, of impact. I think that the, uh, the protracted challenges of the post-war world, uh, they change over time as different um, power centers uh, decline and rise. Uh, many of the challenges of the uh, of the immediate post-war period were brought about by things like decolonization, as European empires start to fold. National movements began in places uh, in Central Africa and in uh, and uh, nationalist movements in the in the Middle East. Uh, all of that had an impact on on where Canadians were ended up serving. You know, in uh, in the Sinai, in the Congo, uh, in other areas. Uh, and the these were kind of peripheral to the big show of mi- preparing for a possible third world war against the soviet union in the in uh, in central europe so uh each generation as it sees some of these bigger problems last for a generation others are you know more brush fires that can kind of be uh you know managed through intervention of a un force and then that can disband and go forward so that there's a reason when we look at the number of canadian military deployments i think there's about 90 plus peacekeeping missions but there's uh if you include things like training missions and these sorts of things that that are mean to uh, create the capacity in other states to manage some of these challenges before they grow up it's it, you know amounts to hundreds andrew burge canadian war museum we continue our conversation looking forward into the smallest little details of the displays of the museum that have the biggest impacts on the veterans and people who visit the canadian war museum andrew burge post 1945 historian andrew we hear so much about canadian military not necessarily in action per se but Traveling the world and teaching other countries is such a big piece of what we do. You know, Canada is such a peaceful country and they don't do much. Everyone's sitting around, imagine them sitting around playing poker and eating Snickers bars, you know. <laughs> um, the Canadian War Museum is a really cool place and that's where Andrew Birch is from. The, it must be interesting for you when we talk about these, these later conflicts and these veterans from later when they come in. Because, you know, 1945 and the end of the Second World War, even to the Korean War, I mean, that's a long time ago now. Afghanistan and these other places that have happened, these places, uh, these, these are young, young men still in a lot of ways. And what's it like when you see some of those representatives or veterans specifically come into the war museum and see their contribution represented? It must be an interesting experience to watch them. I mean, that's, to me, that's what you strive for is to fairly pass on the story and the message of what happened so it never gets forgotten. And then when those people see it and it and they can reconnect to that, that must be quite the amazing experience as a historian plus at the museum. Oh, yeah. We I mean, we certainly try to, right? We want to make sure that, that uh, people's stories are told, that they, if they're bringing their families through, some cases they may have never spoken about uh, their service in, in great detail. Maybe the visit to the museum is an opportunity to say, oh, you know, I was, I was there. My service wasn't quite like that, but, you know, that's what it looked like. That's something that is really important to me. Uh, and it, I see it happen in a variety of different ways. I remember that I was, um, I, had, I was there with my kids on a weekend. There was a program and uh, there was a fellow who was in quiet contemplation. This kid was kind of doing a, a Lego thing. And he was looking at the the, uh, the uh, RG-31 Nyala, the um, uh, armored, basically an armored personnel carrier, V-shaped hull, used in Afghanistan uh, to uh, as a protection against uh, IEDs and these sorts of things. And he was just standing there and looking at it quietly for about five minutes quite intently. And uh, it was a very private moment for him. Uh, I didn't want to go over and, and interrupt him, but I, I could, based on, you know, see the tattoos, could see the bearing, and thought, you know, that's better than even chance that that's someone who's uh, who's seen service and seeing some of their service in a museum and and it you know then the moment was over and he went and enjoyed time with his uh, his family uh, or others where you're taking through groups of people and uh, I had a group of Gulf War veterans come through 
about oh gosh a year and a bit ago and they were uh there and gathered around this um this kind of directional poll where it had all sorts of directions to different towns and cities across canada and this was put up at one of the canadian camps during the war and one of the guys just pointed out and said hey yeah that's me and he had his little signature on the uh, on the poll so a moment of connection through the artifact you know separated in distance from some 30 years but they were they were right there uh, brought back to the moment, even though 30 years had passed, uh, just in conversation there in the in the space. And then, of course, many people who are still serving and who have had since Afghanistan, you know, two, three deployments to Latvia, to Ukraine, to uh, the counter-ISIS mission and others. So these are these are histories that have yet to be fully written and fully incorporated into our displays. And uh, everyone's been very helpful to me and through my career in helping to understand what was at stake there and what was uh, some of the the things that they remember and want told most of all about those experiences. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's too soon. Sometimes it's too soon to draw those conclusions. But yeah. uh, but now, you know, with some distance from some of these missions, uh, people can kind of put a put a better perspective on it. Uh, based on their other experiences in life, and some people want nothing to do with it. They they they've come through and say, I, I don't want to see about my time. I want to go and take a look at the First World War because that's right. that's my grandfather was there. I want to learn more about my grandfather's story. And I think that's so. People kind of have different points of contact, frames of reference when they come through, but lots of personal connections through the artifacts with the stories that are on display, maybe evoking uh, memories of their time and offering them a chance to talk about their families, uh, about what they experienced. Uh, it must be so interesting to hear that context when you have a bunch of items and then all of a sudden you get context on those items like you could never have known because the guy signed the, the board, right? Yeah. That must be interesting for you as a historian to have items and have documents from the government and then you get to hear from these people some specific uh, context where something is dented I don't know, make something up. And then they can actually say, well, you know what happened there? This is what used to happen when we used to do this. And I would bet that that's what that's from. I mean, that could be some amazing context. Oh, absolutely. There's a, there's a, uh, one of our uh, vehicles that's been destroyed by an IED uh, in Afghanistan, a G wagon. It was destroyed in a December 20, 2005 mine strike. Uh, it's actually a remote detonated IED. And I've, since met all three soldiers who were in the vehicle, I've, I've spoken with the journalist who was in that vehicle, I've, uh, and everyone survived that attack, thankfully, uh, owing to the armor package that was on the vehicle. But because the blast wave went through, it actually resulted in some lower extremity fractures. And one of the dri the driver, because his side window was his side was buckled, uh, he couldn't get out the driver's side. He had to go out the passenger side. And through meeting with them. They pointed out to the, the window, and you could see the boot print still on the interior of the window no. where he pushed his way out uh, with his good leg. So it was just kind of like that's something that people connect with in a really interesting way, in the same way that uh, our, our, our Iltis from uh, Croatia in 94, which was shot up by the Serbs going through a checkpoint. And the number of people who have had some contact with that vehicle, either through uh, they were at the medical inspection room, they were prepping for uh, prepping for a quiet night, and then they had to go and deal with it. Or people who actually witnessed this thing peeling around, sparks flying because the, uh, the the service had shot out the tires and had been driving on rims. Uh, you know, these people tell these little bit of extra bits of information about these incidents uh, because it's a shared experience that they've never forgotten, and yet there it is uh, manifest in in an artifact. So it's uh, and we try to try to preserve that through a lot of the work that we do, but. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to do that if people didn't tell us their stories in the first place. So we're very privileged in that way that people trust us to that extent where they're able to impart that to us. Is an important part of being a historian uh, to never underestimate the little things? Because what I'm hearing from you is that, okay, it's great to have a personnel carrier. It's great to have a, a blown up G-Wagon there. Ooh, ah, spectacle. But at the same time, it's the story of the boot print. It's the story of the post with the signature on the arrow pointing back to Regina um, that that really garners the depth to the story. I mean, it's one thing to say that this machine was blown up by a bomb or a mine, but it's different for that. It, that must be an integral part of being a historian is to never dismiss anything. And just that to me starts to sound like the integrity is so important because there are things there that you just don't see. And it must surprise you that sometimes it's the most mundane bit that actually is the most important part. 
I think the most important skill for a historian is to uh, always remain curious and to always be willing to to learn, right? Uh, the worst mistake you can go into in any interaction is go and say, I know everything about this because I guarantee you, you're going to find out something you didn't. Uh, and that's often what has been the case for me, whether it's been about the Korean War, whether it's been about the former Yugoslavia, uh, the uh, the Gulf War, any any conflict, peacekeeping or otherwise that Canadians have been involved in, there's always something you don't know and people are always eager to share and you're going to miss an opportunity if you uh, if you go in thinking that you know everything. And I think that uh, that's true. I think just generally of you know of, of human relationships, you want to be open and, and ready to take in new details. Uh, and but at the same time, you want to make sure that you are. If something sparks your curiosity, then you can go and dig, and you can find out more information, and then you can maybe even go back to that person who shared a detail and say, "Hey, you had this experience, but did did it relate to this that I also found?" And then that's a great point of connection where, "Oh, wow, I can't believe you found that." So it's it's. Um, Always being curious, always being uh, interested in what people have to say, but then also doing the, the follow-on work to uh, to be able to try to verify it a little bit more, uh, to be able to draw those other connections, uh, because everyone's experience or slice of the war, or the operation they were on, was just one slice. And it will be a different perspective if they were, say, the, uh, the the commanding officer or the RSM than it would be if they're uh, you know a private or a corporal on the ground, uh, you know, an aviator. Uh, you know, sailor, uh, their slice of the of the operation and what they recall and what they can contribute to the conversation is different. So you can't dismiss any just one, uh, but you can try to synthesize them all into a, a story that people can understand. If curiosity is one of the keys to being a historian, um, I imagine one of the burdens of being a historian that nobody talks about is history tends to repeat itself. And as a person who is educated in all this, experienced in all of this, you don't have to speak to detail because I don't want to get into politics or any of those things right now. But um, there, there are elements that happen in our world where our knowledge kicks in and we start to see patterns. And because of such a deep knowledge of what happens around the world, I mean, your view is not just your town or your street or your hockey rink. Your view is the entire globe. And when you start to see patterns, we often don't learn from the past. I've said here on the show many times, we haven't come very far in some ways. Um, it must be a, a bit difficult to see some of the things that happen in the world today and go, yeah, I've seen this one before. Hmm. I think uh, one of the hardest things for uh, some of the veterans I've spoken to is about uh, when they served, didn't matter where, they would often reflect on the people who are kind of caught in the middle, right? That they, they, these were the people, you know, they may respect the enemy, they may hate the enemy, uh, but it's, they always feel for the people who are caught in the middle, who are blameless in, in what's, what's happened. And uh, you see that in Afghanistan, Korea, that's a lot of people who come back and they, they just think about those, those orphans, the, the refugees that were clustered around and wanting to do more for them. And they couldn't, I think that we're, we're blessed in Canada and that we are far from, most of these conflicts, that so we don't have the the level of exposure to them. I think that uh, for people who who live in the proximity, there's, you know, they follow familiar patterns. But for for us, we live in peace most of the time, and it just seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, but every one of these conflicts has a long, long history. Uh, be it in Ukraine, be it uh, in the Middle East, or be it in, uh, you know, uh, the Korean Peninsula or or anywhere. There's all sorts of regional and local dynamics that factor into these that are are uh are quite challenging to resolve and uh it's not worth doesn't mean we shouldn't try <laughs> yeah absolutely. i think i think i think that's the work that uh that's the work that that canadian soldiers and diplomats and others have have undertaken over many 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 years uh and the fact is that there's a huge wealth of experience uh with the canadian veterans who who've been around the world and can kind of speak to these these things based on their own personal experience uh it is a bit depressing, you know, because mm -hmm. you, you like to think that we're always on an arc towards a, a peaceful, better world. But that expectation has always been there. Just what, like when we started talking about 1945, you'd often see that the drawing of a couple with their kids standing on the, 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 the crest of a hill looking towards a bright future. And that's what we always want. We always mm -hmm. hope for a bright future. Yeah. And yet then we were disappointed because the Cold War took place 
you know, more resources being put towards, uh, you know, the arms race and all sorts of things. And people try, people aren't of just one mind about that. There are many, many different perspectives. And it's worthwhile to think about that when we're in history is that there's never just one point of view that's, that's out there. There's lots and lots and lots that make up a world. And we're always hoping for the best, but we have to plan for the worst. And, well, uh, you've, yeah. Sorry, continue your thought. I thought you were done. No, no, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I was. I just think that the. I think what you've brought for me for clarity in that is that I said at the beginning. I said, um, you know, the world we truly live in versus this rosy look that we have, and what you brought to clarity for me in saying that is me getting kind of caught in that mentality as well. That if history, if the notion is that history repeats itself, then that is a bit of a rosy look. And if I stay, if I even say that this is what's really happening in the world, then perhaps the look I should take is not history repeats itself so much as history is happening and it's been happening for a long time and it hasn't changed. It has continued to happen. And like you said, some of these conflicts, while we might be hearing it for the first time is an everyday event for some of these people. And so perhaps history is not actually repeating itself. Um, we just haven't been looking now. That's a, that's a responsibility look for us to pay attention and, and learn those people caught in the middle a little differently mm-hmm. than we have in the past. Uh, and I think that if we look at the people that are caught in the middle, it all of a sudden starts to change our look at the people that stood there to try to protect them um, either on this side or that side. I suppose, like you said, history is perspective and, and um, you, you can see, I think the, the power and courage that comes a little differently. This, at least I'm seeing it for the first time that comes with standing there the belief that you're protecting those people or people like them um, when it's been going on for so long and it's maybe not new. Um, that's a whole new look at this. And I, uh, that's fantastic. Oh, I, I, you know, one of the things that we have in the concluding area of my gallery is uh, a little board where people can write, uh, write their, their reflections. And so we asked a question, you know, how has war shaped you, your family, uh, your kind of your world? And, there's a lot of them that are like my grandfather served in the Second World War. Yep. You know, my uh, my son-in-law served in Afghanistan, what have you. But you also get a lot of people who are saying, you know, I came to Canada because of war, uh, and some of them are, I came to Canada because of war, and I've just enlisted in the armed forces. And so there's there's the kind of uh, they don't want other people to have to go through what they went through, or they uh, some cases they they signed up out of gratitude for the uh, the soft landing that you know. This country, you know, we have our own challenges, obviously, uh, throughout time, but it's still so much more safe and peaceful. But it's it's so shocking when you think about when you think about war. You often think about it. It's on the screen, it's in the it's in your textbook, but it's around you all the time. But the, the people who make up our society are often people who, quite surprisingly, have connections to war, either firsthand or through their family. Or through their their uh, their extended family, and that's how a lot of people learn about history in the first place is through these received stories. And uh, it, I always I always take a moment whenever I'm walking through the gallery, checking up on things, to go and see what stories people have shared with us, because it's either going to be ones that I I expect to see or ones that completely take me by surprise. It's amazing. Um, Canadian War Museum is fantastic. It's uh, uh, thought provoking. And uh, curiosity, I think, would be the key, as you've described. Uh, Dr. Andrew Birch is post-1945 historian at the Canadian War Museum. Thank you for this. I really appreciate it and, and all the insight you've shared. My pleasure. This is The Shift Podcast. Yes, what the hell should we watch this weekend? Steve Stepping joins us from Penticton, B.C., here... And uh, it's time to talk about the movies. We have the AV Club with Dunkirk coming up here shortly. Uh, how you doing, Steve? Welcome back. Not too bad. How are you doing, Shane? Oh, I'm good. I'm feeling good. Nice. Going into the weekend this weekend. We got lots of Remembrance Day stuff on the shift, which is always nice and a good reminder, I think, of, of gratitude of how far we've come. The hashtag first world problems feel a lot less first worldy online and social media and all those things, don't you think? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I would agree with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, it's a good grounding place. What about you this weekend? What, what goes on in Penticton? I, here in Calgary, they've got the big Memorial Drive, 3,500 crosses. Uh, amazing. And then the city of Airdrie, I'm in, on Veterans Boulevard, they've got the whole um, the median right down the middle is filled with crosses. Do they, they do stuff in Penticton? Uh, yeah. I mean, being the, uh, you know a large retiree community, too, a lot of uh, retired you know uh, Canadian Forces members and staff live in town. So... Yeah, I mean, there are definitely events around town and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 
Uh, it caught me off guard with that one. I, I no. don't really know where yeah, in right. Benticton everything's going on, but there are things. Going there are on. things. I'm, I'm sure there are. Yeah. And, uh, really great to go out and enjoy all that stuff too. Um, I had this one text from John in Delta says, Shane, like you, I have a poppy pin that I use, um, after losing the traditional poppies all the time in November. He says, however, I do pass someone with a poppy stand. I donate a buck or two uh, to the Legion Service for Veterans and other programs. And that's John from Delta. So cool. Where are you, Poppy? All right. Time to talk movies. Our Shift AV Club Remembrance Day movies coming up here shortly. Steve, let's get started here. Um, I don't know how this keeps happening. These <laughs> Marvel's movies are seem to be everywhere. Ugh. Let's get the uh, I don't understand them. Let's get the let's get the trailer. Annihilator. You took everything from me. And now I'm returning the favor. Okay. Marvels and superheroes. Never been my jam. Good or not good? Um, I thought this movie was fun. Um, I really like the principal cast and the, and the main characters in this one. Uh, Captain Marvel, uh, Monica Rambo, and uh, Kamala Khan, who is Miss Marvel, who was introduced uh, earlier this year in the Disney Plus series. I really don't think... Um, I mean, there is a, obviously all the, the MCU subtext, but I feel like this movie also is fun enough as just kind of like a space action film to draw people in. It's got a lot of charm to it. Um, but uh, as far as the overarching uh, Marvel stuff goes, there is some very exciting stuff that reveals in this. I will not give away spoilers, but there uh, exciting stuff for the future in the MCU for me uh, personally and in comic book fans like me. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's not what these big what the big marvel movies were like avengers endgame and infinity war and it's something that marvel always will be chasing now because that is i think that is the pinnacle so Mm. everything else just it's not that is that the big secret because that's kind of what i feel like it is is at the very end of the movie there's this one flash of some sort of hook of some sort of mm-hmm. uncupping, uh, upcoming movie or storyline, and everyone who's a big fan goes, ooh, and then that's yep. all they talk about when they leave the theater. Do they still do that stuff? Yeah, that is still part of this. I mean, there's one, there's only one um, end credit thing, and then there's like a bit of like a, a sound end tag uh, at the end. But uh, yeah, the, the this little uh, stinger is what they're called. Mm. And um, yeah, this one, this one was a fun one. Okay, there you go. So there's some hooks if you want to go watch the Marvels in the theater from Steve Stebbing. SteveStebbing.ca to get in touch with Steve and everything that he gets up to. The lists that he writes for these things, by the way, are a lot longer than what we just get to here on the radio show. So there's a lot more to this. Next, though, on the list we have is The Holdovers. Every year at Martin Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I had you guys stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on us. <laughs> uh, uh, the misfits come back together again. Typical show. Uh, this is a really cool one because it comes from a director I really, really, really like, um, Alexander Payne, who did uh, Election, About Schmidt, Nebraska. I mean, there's a whole slew of films that he that he's done that I really like. And this one has him kind of doing a 1970s film uh, with following a completely unlikable teacher uh, played by Paul Giamatti. Uh, who is uh, holed up at a a boarding school over the Christmas holiday, and he has to kind of watch out for a 15-year-old kid named Angus who is also on the brink of being expelled because he's just uh, in the throes of some really bad behavior. And I love character films like this, and I'm saddened that I... In Penticton, I don't. We're not. I don't think we're going to see this movie in theaters. Even, even coming up over the Christmas holidays when there's not many films in theaters, it's just kind of a small film. And uh, 
that's the bummer about living in a small market. But uh, I, I implore people to go see this one because I think uh, Giamatti is going to get some looks for Academy Awards. Taking the stand for the little movie, the little man yeah. in the little movie. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All the time. All the time yeah. and every week. If there's a little movie I can stand up for, I'll do it. <laughs> you got to say it like a politician. I'm here for the little people. Right? <laughs> and get it all wrong. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, next on the list here, Steve Stebbing. What the hell should we watch this weekend? The Killer. Breathe. Breathe. Calm. Prepare to be excited. This is what it takes if you want to succeed. Hey, so scary and stuff. Um, I think more in a, like a not as fantastical as like a Jason Bourne, but this is this is a hitman movie. This is Michael Fassbender oh, okay. playing a Thrilly. hitman in kind of like a neo noir kind of thriller. Uh, this comes from David Fincher, and David Fincher is one of the top filmmakers in cinema in my opinion a, a, a director that you you take note of uh, a director that's given us like incredible films like fight club uh zodiac um more recently a mank on netflix which is also where this film is, will be debuting uh, right about now i think it'll be on netflix or an hour from now in bc um and this is a movie that i've been waiting for all year because like I, like I said, Fincher is just a guy that I have on a massive pedestal. And uh, I mean, Michael Fassbender is an incredible actor. You have Tilda Swinton in this one as well. Um, all signs are pointing to this being one of the best films of the year. I, um, You know what I did like? If you had those, like the Hitman movies, I like those movies. I think those are good movies. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The Hitman's Bodyguard, that was like five or six years ago. That was a good yeah, show. Yeah. The first one, then they did the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Yeah, but that's just Ryan Reynolds makes it entertaining somehow, you know? Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. Um, I uh, I just like that, just throwing that in there. There's my two cents. I'm a movie expert now. No, not at all. <laughs> um, now, also, uh, on Blu-ray, I think this one's on the Blu-ray, we got the Gran Turismo. The best Gran Turismo players in the world with a chance to compete in professional racing. Dude, this is real. This is real. I'm sorry. You really think you're going to take a kid who plays video games in their bedroom, you're going to strap him to a 200-mile-an-hour rocket. It'll tear him to pieces. So this is kind of everybody who doesn't play video games dream. Watching people mm -hmm. who play video games who think they're experts go do the real thing. Like if somebody plays Chell 24, to watch them get on the ice and play a real hockey game... See, that's where people, I think, would be really entertained. Mm -hmm. Same thing with shooter games and war games, as opposed to hiding and cowering in the corner, which is what I would do. Uh, this kind of like that, except it's cars. Yeah, but I think it's with with racing games, it's a lot more in depth because the uh, like this movie uh, kind of illustrates because um, it is based on a true story, the true story of uh, uh, Jan Martinborough, um, and basically they have like these full like racing like the pedals the wheel like everything like even like the seat and uh, you know like everything down to the to the core that they're almost like the simulation because they they, they kind of get like some of the characters in this kind of get upset um at it being called a video game because what gran turismo is is a driving simulator and i think uh -huh. they always they always like they don't like that line blurred mm -hmm. so um, but kind of I mean, like how the it, real car racers probably don't like the line blurred when they say their car drivers are. <laughs> some people would say calling video game players athletes even that gets some mm -hmm. people upset about blurring lines too, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, especially with all the esports and everything, and that being like the new hotness for a while now. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I being that this film was produced by by PlayStation, I was leery about it but i saw this when it came out in theaters and i had no idea i was gonna be watching possibly one of the best sports films of the year uh definitely one of the best racing films that have been made in the last 20 years and uh also has like some really great character work that you kind of latch on to these characters as well so 
uh, I thought Gran Turismo was a real hit, and on uh, Blu-ray, like watching it in your own home, I think it'll really do well and kick up your stereo for this one because it's worth it. All right, last year, quickly, let's get to, uh, why not, Scrooged in 4K. I got into broadcasting because I like to give. That's my cab. Sometimes I find myself hurting from giving too much. Fire these people. It's Christmas. Bahama. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay, Scrooge in 4K. Is it better? Yeah. I mean, it. I haven't seen this movie in a long time, since probably sometime in the 90s. So to re-immerse like, myself in it again... Um, Honestly, my favorite, it's my favorite interpretation of, um, of the Dickens classic for sure. Um, I, it, it's Richard Donner that made this film who is like, you know, he made Goonies, he made Lethal Gun, uh, Lethal Weapon. Like he made so many great, like cinematic classics in my, in my, uh, my movie watching life. And this is another one. It just absolutely reminded me. And it's also probably one of my favorite Bill Murray performances, and has a great, great, great supporting role from uh, Bobcat Goldthwait, who almost steals every scene he's in. Very good. Okay. This is the Shift Podcast. Brian O'Donnell is away for the weekend. So is John O'Chung. Two very different places they've gone. Ryan's in southern Ontario. John is in the Yukon. So we've uh, we've recruited some help here on the shift to um to do the show and i'm very excited to have this help with me so let's get started here with are you okay with are you are you are you okay 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 are you okay with 877-399-9898 get that number at shiftheads.ca if you ever forget it first let's go to south calgary and demi knight is here uh filling in for ryan o'donnell content producer hi demi hi Welcome back. Great to see you. Thanks for being uh, here late at night and turning your entire sleep schedule upside down. Always a pleasure. Love to do it. Oh, you're very nice. Give it a couple mm-hmm. of days. <laughs> Debbie's mm-hmm. an early bird. She likes to get up early and be all motivated and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. I woke up late today at 8 a.m. Wow. I don't know how you can waste away your time like that, I, slacker. I don't know either. I'm disappointed <laughs> in myself. In Vancouver downtown, Talia Miller, the technical producer for the Little More Conversation show with Ben O'Hara Byrne. I kidnapped her and stole her and brought her here. And uh, also turning your schedule upside down and making sacrifices with other responsibilities to be here. So I do appreciate you as well. I do what I can. Happy to okay. be here. All right. So the uh, the uh, there's been a shift of the force here um, with uh, my fellas and my boys are gone. Uh, but my gal pals are here. So let's get started with Are You Okay With? Now, Taylor Swift. <sighs> I might regret this one, but let's first start. There's two t- There's two things here. First of all, there was a Taylor Smith, uh, Smith Swift reporter thing, and then there was Taylor Swift tickets. Let's go to Demi Knight. Are You Okay With Taylor Swift? Be honest. Um, Don't be nice. No, no. Well, I mean, she's fine. She's a human. She's she's there. But I don't she's get it. She's there. Get the, like, <laughs> I don't get the hype. I think her songs aren't like I could have wrote them probably when I was five years old. I well, if you got dumped, is, yeah. Well, yeah. I think I do like the new meme far. of her with her football boyfriend, and she's taking her new album for a walk. I think that's pretty great. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I just think she's so overhyped that I just don't, I don't get it. I don't think she's a great singer. I don't love her songs. I think she's very average. I do not understand the intense following that she has. All right. Uh, Heartbreak, I think, is the answer to your question. Uh, You need to get dumped more often. Talia Miller, are you okay with Taylor Swift? I mean, obviously, if you know anything (laughs) about me, it's like the one thing, you know? Oh man, we got a fight in our hands here. Okay, so tell me, there was a, there was a job posting, um, mm-hmm. and it was for a Taylor Swift reporter. And I'm guessing, by the fact that you're here with us, 
Um, you you didn't get it? Did you apply? Did you throw your name in the ring? What happened? I, I meant to apply. I genuinely did. And things just got really busy between mm-hmm. two jobs, everything going on here. And also, you mm-hmm. know what? I want to keep loving her. What if I became the reporter and I just get turned off by Ooh. her? You know? That'd be terrible. Got to keep the magic alive. She's not that good anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Demi. <laughs> the uh the uh you know what if she lets you down right you don't want to know right look at that did you see what's happening in my video where did those come from oh there's uh we're on a video call and we're all together i know that there's these hand gesture things that happen on on zoom now we don't uh we're not just our video is on anyway and it just sent a bunch of balloons across the screen so i don't know what that means anyway this is the radio that makes nothing to you back to hating taylor swift um now so they did hire somebody for the taylor swift reporter job and not you so now you get to love her from a distance right Mm -hmm. so that works out for you talia it really does okay um demi uh i hate to break it to you i don't think you got the job oh darn okay i would have done so well right can you imagine can you imagine those interviews (laughs) uh here's your taylor swift reporter demi knight why do you suck uh, I think it's heartbreak. Tell you what is it? Why does everyone like Taylor Swift? I mean, for me, not everyone. You, yeah, Why just do you like, Taylor like Swift? I'm, I can't speak for everybody, you know. But for me, I feel that her music has always made me feel seen or heard when I maybe have not felt seen or heard. Hmm. And I think that's why I think she writes pretty relatable songs um you know i do we'll say demi there are some where i go and i'm like it's not a bop it doesn't slap mm, but i no say slapping. for it's <laughs> but for majority like you know she is the she is the music that i put on when i'm happy or upset and gets me through the day and i think everybody has that artist even if it's not miss swift yeah and for a whole generation so mm-hmm. there you go that's what matters. Now, uh, you you went to see Taylor down in Seattle? I did. I went to the first night. Yeah, you were part of the earthquake there. I, do, I was. Wasn't that, that was awesome. Yeah. There was, it measured <laughs> on the Richter scale, actually, the concert. Now, she is uh, coming to Canada, but it looks like not everybody's going to get to see her. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Many fans wanting to see the superstar in Vancouver... We're left disappointed. Most of the people that I know only got waitlist, and then, yeah, I haven't seen anyone who actually got the tickets. Online sales started Thursday morning, but only to the lucky fans who won a lottery to receive pre-sale codes. Instead, many Swifties were added to a waitlist. It is going to be like the concert of, of the century, so, I mean, it's very hard for me to think that I'll get tickets. Here at Vancouver Ticket Service, the phone has been ringing nonstop. I'm looking to see what you have for um, Taylor Swift when it comes available. Kingsley Bailey says they will get some tickets, but don't know how many just yet. I'm getting inundated with a lot of text messages and a lot of emails. Uh, People asking me what's going on. Tickets have been appearing on resale sites like StubHub for days now. They cost a pretty penny, from $1,500 to more than $26,000. When you're a sponsor, you get a certain allocation of tickets. Another one is there might be people that are specking on tickets. Like, I don't know who's going to be able to afford something like that. I figured even if I got a ticket, it probably would be out of my price range. Yeah, like, sorry kids, you're not having dinner this week because mommy has Taylor Swift concert tickets. Some fans can't shake it off, desperately launching their own online fundraising campaigns to pay for tickets. The last time I saw something like this was the Rolling Stones. This is definitely bigger. The only place those without tickets can see her. Angela Jung, Global News. Very good. Okay, so now the the spec of the tickets, the people are basically putting them up for sale before they even buy them, just to try to queue up people. And the $26,000 for tickets, I mean, we don't even have to get into the whole uh, off-the-charts resale market of scalping i mean it's just dirty everything's dirty it's fixed it's rigged it's terrible there's nothing good about it it needs regulation there's nothing to say i'm a capitalist good for you make your money but this is beyond this is beyond fair and reasonable in any way now the toronto stuff 
the cues were good for the Toronto shows, and then you got in and you, I know a couple of people, a bunch of people. Now, they're mega high tickets and stuff, but they, lots of people got in, got their number, the anxiousness of waiting for the ticket. So, she's good for the economy. That's good. I know Demi likes money. Yes. There you go. That's why we bring her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should probably tell the story that Demi, uh, Demi and I were exchanging pictures of our Christmas trees already. We were. That's yeah. more exciting than Taylor Swift. I'll tell you that much. You can say Italia. It's all right. <laughs> I mean, Christmas trees are fine. I haven't put mine fine. up yet. It's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. Everything's fine. fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. Are you okay with donuts? Yeah, there's a um, a great meme of you can only pick three donuts. That's up at shiftheads.ca in the Facebook group right now. And you have to pick three flavors. Mine was sour cream glazed times three, of course, because that's only the best donut in the world. But uh, what's the best donut? Demi Knight, what do you got? You're probably, you're, your best donut's probably asparagus. Um, I don't, I don't like donuts. What? Yeah. <laughs> I know. She's, a, she's, I know. A, she's complex. She doesn't <laughs> like Taylor Swift. Human. Doesn't like donuts. <laughs> Gets up early Keep in the it. morning, hangs out late at night. I have a very legit reason. When I was growing up, we had a donut van where we made like donuts and we took it to the market every single weekend um, back in England. And so I would be around donuts every weekend and the smell of them now makes me feel sick. Oh, I'm so oh. sorry. My oh. condolences. Yeah. It's a hard life for me. I know. <laughs> hey, I didn't know people had donut baggage. It's yeah. a thing. Just talk to somebody yeah. about that. Ruined uh, for me. Okay. So then no donuts. Talia Miller, what is the best flavor of donut? I'm with you on sour cream glazed. That's always my favorite. Right? That's it, top tier donut. Yeah, we go through the drive through. Can I have a sour cream glazed donut, please? Oh, I'm sorry, we're all out. Would you like another flavor? No. You don't have a second favorite? You don't have a backup? No. Except maybe a Boston cream from time to time. Mm-hmm. That's about it. That's a good what? one. <laughs> Demi's mad. Demi can smell it right now. I know. Having Are you flashbacks. Sick? <laughs> you feel Ill? Did you like yeah. make mini donuts? Or really full size donuts. They were like the big donuts that would pop out of the little. Have you ever seen the machines where it pops yep. the donuts out into the oil and then the? Yeah, yeah. it was like it was a it was a full on thing. Mm, that's how they make mini donuts too. And then the smell like encompasses you, like you're just yeah. in it and in it's your clothes. All I bet in your hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I imagine mm-hmm. that. Okay, um, there was another with the Ryan Showy game this week on Game Showy. One of the questions. Uh, that was brought out was what was Ryan's it was from one of the shift heads on the Facebook group. What is Ryan's first thing he's going to do when he goes to Ontario, which was uh, go to Smoke's Poutinery, go to Krispy Kreme to get some donuts, go to get some sushi. I think the other one was or go straight to the weed shop. Those are the four questions posed by the shift heads for game showy. Uh, this one, we didn't get to it in game show. Of course, the answer was Krispy Kreme donuts. So. Mm. Uh, there you go. Now you know. Huh. I hope you feel better. Hundreds of people in Connecticut ran out of donuts this week after the heist of the century. It's a good thing Dunkin' Donuts rebranded to just Dunkin' as multiple locations across western Connecticut started their Sunday with empty shelves. My manager had contacted the place where we get our donuts from and they let us know that they were stolen. So they said that the truck had got stolen and the donuts had fallen all out of the back. The Allen family comes for donuts once a week. Four-year-old Ethan usually gets his in the shape of a... Spider. But not today. We had to improvise. We had some rings with nothing on them already, so we had to frost some of those. Staff say they called their delivery company around 4 o'clock Sunday morning when their donuts didn't show. The company said their truck had been stolen and was crashed in Waterbury, costing them thousands of donuts. A little funny. We just thought we're later than normal. Some of them laughed. Some of them couldn't believe it. And then uh, we had this one guy even be like, what kind of Dunkin' Donuts is this? Eventually, this location got a shipment just a little later than normal, and Ethan got his weekly treat. Donut with orange on it. In Thomaston, Blue Ash, Channel 3. Way to go, Ethan. That's ABC3 right there. Now, let's talk about donuts here on The Shift. Um, first of all, Demi spells donuts like she's from Manchester in the UK with a D-O-U-G-H, nuts. 
Yeah. As opposed to the North American D-O-N-U-T nut, donut nut. That is uh, wrong. Yes. I, I figured like you would, I, like, I think, I swear for a donut, if I imagine a donut truck at a market yeah. in Manchester with yeah. a little girl serving the donuts, every time she hands out a donut, she goes, uh, um, <laughs> With a little, like I said, like a little marmalade on top or something. Like, I don't know. How do you serve donuts in the UK? No, you know what we did is we put them in bags and you either shook them in cinnamon or sugar. Like powdered sugar or refined sugar? No, like like sugar, sugar. Grain sugar, sugar grains. What do you call that? Okay. All right. Yeah. I I also don't like cinnamon now because of that. So I bet. (laughs) (laughs) You don't like markets either. In fact, you just don't like people. Um, Yeah. All right, here's some stats from 2020 about donuts. Um, the most loved donuts in Canada. Boston cream tops the uh, list across Atlantic provinces, which makes sense because they're close to Boston. However, it also ranked a close second in the rest of Canada. Pushes to the top spot is Canada's top Tim Hortons donut, Boston cream. Behind the Boston cream, the overall most ordered list came the apple fritter in second, which I feel like is a pity donut. I mean, it's not a donut. First of all, and I mean, McDonald's tried to sell them to you forever in the hot apple pie form. And it's not even a donut. It's, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's the ugly donut that nobody wants to take at work. So, so you eat it anyway. Old fashioned plain was third honey crueler in fourth, which isn't even a donut. It's like air with sugar on it and uh, the chocolate dip in fifth. I have not spent too much time thinking about my donuts. I feel like that's important to to share. I'm Shane Hewitt. Demi Knight is here. Talia Miller is here as well. Are you okay with expensive purses? Talia, are you uh, a handbag person? No. I could spend no? my money elsewhere. As long as I can fit all my stuff in it, we're good to go. Yeah. Not uh, not girly girl with the purse? Not really. I've had the same one since I was 18, and she's still going strong. So See? There you go. Uh, some people have three or four a day. Uh, Demi, I, your financial responsibility probably says no, I'm guessing. Probably oh, no. like a $2 I'm... pencil case from the dollar store is where you keep your stuff is what I imagine. Yeah. I actually don't have a purse, period. I have um, uh, like a wallet that has my my cards in that I carry sometimes, but most of the time I just toss my card in my pocket and I go. That's it. That's it. That stresses me out. Does it? I have lost several cards. (laughs) That's why it stresses me out. (laughs) You can get those cases for the back of your phone. No, those are pretty all right. Yeah, I I had one of those, but then my phone didn't fit in my pocket and I had to physically carry my phone and that didn't work for me either. So Mm. took it off and I just... (laughs) Keep trying to put it in my pocket. See, I don't know if you've caught on yet, but making decisions is not a problem for Demi. She has yeah. no problem making decisions. Uh, okay. We chatted about this earlier in the week, but wanted to expand on it because it's now caused some trouble. A million-dollar Louis Vuitton bag is causing people to be a little unhappy with Pharrell Williams. Well... I can be that happy, too, if I was uh, sitting in public and uh, walking around with a million-dollar bag. I mean, you know you're rich when your bag is worth a million dollars, and you look at his glasses and his chains and all the things. I mean, he's earned it. He's so extremely talented, so I don't take that away. But, I mean, millions of dollars. I would be so... You you talk about being worried about losing your debit card. How about losing your million-dollar Louis Vuitton bag? Now, this is getting attention because it's so outlandish. He has carrying the bag at Paris Fashion Week over the course of the summer. It's really started to expand on the internet. The average person might want to spend some money on a pretty purse or something like that for themselves or for a gift, but you have to be invited to purchase bags like this. You can't even walk into a store. So they're only available for existing clientele and people that they prefer to carry them. So even if you had an extra mill lying around, uh, you can't even just go buy one unless you're invited to do it. The thing, the negative feedback online is mind blowing, right? It's kind of a made to order thing. Here's, here's what really gets me. 
I think it's, I think it's a little bit tone deaf. I mean, he's earned his money. He's entitled to do, do whatever he wants, but he's selling those same songs to everybody else and they're paying for the music. And I just find that, look, he can do what he wants. It's his money. He earned it and he deserves every penny he has. He's so talented. You want to talk about what class separation starts to look like and what this society is, is looking like is there are people going to outlet stores trying to get a coach bag on discount so they can fit in and feel good because they see this stuff constantly in their, their Instagram feed. And I think that's heartbreaking. It's quite heartbreaking because so many people think this is real life and this is, this is what they need to aspire for. They don't aspire for the multis and millions of dollars success that comes with the career that, that that man has chosen. They aspire to carry that bag. And I find it particularly heartbreaking. Negative feedback online, though, I think is starting to take things into account. I wanted to ask, Demi, do you find that some of these conversations like this that maybe used to be okay? Um, one of the Kardashians has like Swarovski gemstone underwear now. Mm. Um, and like it just, are you finding that there seems to be more blowback or pushback on these things than there was before? Or am I reading the internet wrong? Mm, I think that more people now are paying attention and voicing their opinions more. Like, I feel like people probably always felt this way that it's just ridiculous to spend that kind of money or have those kind of things. But I don't know. I think we've kind of gotten to a time now where everyone is like a citizen journalist and everyone voices their opinion. Mm. So I think we're seeing it more, but I think it's always been a similar thought that everyone's had. Mm. That's a very good point. Talia, um, do you find that people are pushing back? I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with, um, with people buying their things and whatever. And I, th- I think Demi has a good point about everyone seems to want to share their opinions online, but they don't seem to be trolling so much. Or is this maybe just the internet trying to cancel somebody for being successful and having something that they can't afford? I mean, I second everything that Demi just said. Like, it's pretty, I think people are just voicing their opinions more. And, you know, I think there's, bigger things going on in the world too that why are you like if i had an extra mill i don't think i would buy the bag or the underwear you know Mm -hmm. what's wrong Mm -hmm. with a basic pair of both yeah well and that's just it i mean i guess i mean you had to have a lot of millions i guess (laughs) (laughs) to be a lot of millions right (laughs) that's fascinating stuff anyway so the back is ugly can we just acknowledge that too it's It's ugly i haven't seen it nice no, it's like I if you agree. were rolling around with something that was just like stunning and people were like, oh, my God, that's amazing. But it's ugly. Yeah, like classic. I think classic, the classic kinds of fashion or cars. For me, I always go back to like James Bond and a nice tuxedo and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, mm. You know, the Kings, what uh, the Kingsman, or whatever that, that one is, the uh, with the nice suits and the, you know, nice shoes and custom tailored, really nice stuff. If you went and spent a bunch of money on a really custom classic thing that's going to last forever, this is the kind of thing that is so hokey in it, like, it's really going to look bad. You know, those fashion eras where you're like, oh, what were we yeah. thinking? All of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a million, yeah. a million, million bucks. That's a lot of money. Anyway, although that being said, I wish I had a million bucks. Mm-hmm. That'd be all right. I so do I too, but I wouldn't spend it. it on that. It's a very good point. Amen, Demi. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.